I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to Micromaterialism, the show where we take a material science topic and break it down into a bite-sized chunk. My name is Andrew and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Taylor Sparks, and our audio producer, Jared Duffy. How was your weekend, guys? Had better. We, my whole family was down with the flu. It was not nice. I don't know if it was COVID, but whatever it was, I wouldn't wish it on any of you guys. I'm starting my capstone project. So it's all reading through a bunch of things saying, oh, which one, which proposal do I want to do? Because I have to, I have to read through companies' proposals and then repropose to them why they should pick me to design stuff. It's really exciting. <laughs> Loving it. How about you, Andrew? How you been? Uh, good. I went to uh, up to Idaho over the weekend to uh, attend a, a good friend of mine's wedding. It's really nice. On the way back, it got got kind of spooky. Um, the weather in Boise and Salt Lake was pretty great, like 45, 40. But then in this sort of intermediate valley, it drops to like 20 and this dense fog rolled in and uh, started getting real spooky when I just like moved through the fog and suddenly was aware of a semi truck that had um, <laughs> fallen off of the road was on its side. And then one of those big trucks that carries cars had collided with another truck Oh my gosh. and like the scaffolding holding up the cars had broken. Um, but when I emerged from the fog, it was actually very beautiful, nice bluebird day with uh, snow covering everything. I uh, wish I had my camera on me, but it was a nice drive. Otherwise that's wild. Well, we have a fantastic episode for you guys today. Um, if you remember, a couple episodes ago on episode 46, we talked about some new nuclear fuels. And that, you know, people love that episode. <laughs> I'm glad that there's nuclear heads out there like us that think it's a cool technology. But it's not all roses when it comes to nuclear. In fact, one of the big open questions is, what do you do with the fuel when we're done with it? And that's the topic of today's episode. Andrew, what are we doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty broad topic. It's one of those where you start researching it, thinking, oh, okay, we'll just make this a nice short micro. And then quickly you realize, <laughs> oh, this could be several full episodes. Yeah, do we talk about processing? Do we talk about the separation? But to kind of just to narrow it down, we wanted to focus on what they call the, uh, or focus on the disposal of what they call high-level waste. So across the world, there's a bunch of different classifications for this waste that's produced by nuclear reactors or involved in just the operation of nuclear reactors. And they typically split this along uh, low-level, intermediate level, and then high-level. Um, low-level stuff is going to be, the low-level waste that's most concerning are these um, kind of like long-lived radionuclides like uh, radium-226, which has a half-life of 1,600 years, or carbon-14, which has a half-life of 5,700 years. Isn't it wild just how different these half-lives can be for things that are even kind of close to each other on the periodic table? I mean, orders of magnitude different in time scales. Yeah. Um, I mean, it all has to do with the stability and the, the, the composition of the nucleus and what it decays to. It's actually really cool to look up the decay chains of some of these elements. They're tabulated pretty well, I think, and you can kind of see what these unstable 
atoms will decay to over time. But low-level waste like uh, radium and carbon-14 is not particularly concerning or you know, life-threatening. I mean, long-term exposure, chronic exposure, is going to be pretty damaging, but acute exposure is not necessarily a problem. And the particles or the type of radiation that it's emitting is not particularly difficult to shield. Um, so it's really just a matter of storing it appropriately. Intermediate-level waste is going to be things like more intensive radionuclides, such as cobalt-60, which has a half-life of five and a half years, or cesium-137, which has a half-life of 30 years. Um, this can also include things like gloves, tools, um, filters, just basically like different things that are going to be used in just the operation or maintenance of nuclear reactors. And these give off you know, considerably more harmful uh, types of radiation that can be quite damaging. And, you know, 30 years is considerably short-lived, but when we start looking at, you know, the metals that comprise the reactor, we start to get some long-lived species. And then when we go to high-level waste, which is the topic of the show, that's going to be the fuel rods themselves that are, um, after, after they've uh, been used enough and they've surpassed their useful life, we have to store them somehow. So we've been doing nuclear for quite a while, right? Coming up on a century-ish, right? And yet we still haven't figured out a good long-term solution. And it's not that it's technically not possible, as we'll describe in today's episode. Largely, it's been political, right? It's been a political question about where to store these. And so what we've done in the meantime, while we don't have a solution, is leave them on site, which is crazy. In fact, one of the ways what they'll put them after we've used them to harvest energy is in these spent fuel pools, which is, like, imagine a swimming pool, and you just drop one of these things inside of it. Now, you might think to yourself, why on earth would you put it underwater? Well, it has a couple benefits. For one thing, actually, water is not a terrible way to absorb the radiation coming off of it. It actually does a pretty good job of absorbing things. But more importantly, it also serves the other problem of dealing with the heat that continuously gets generated by these things as they continue to decay. Because you can actually cycle that water in and out just like you would any other power plant, and you could even pull additional heat off of it. And there's been some proposals to do just that with this waste heat that's sitting in these pools. But in any case, it's not a good option, so there's got to be something better. Walk us through what our other options are, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, the reason they put them in pools is just because of that decay heat, as you mentioned. And it's kind of a weird problem, right? It's not like, you know, something hot. And if you expose it to water, eventually it will, you know, cool down as the heat leaves it. These materials are constantly decaying. And so they're going to continuously release heat. So they typically spend about the spent fuel assemblies will spend about 20 years in these pools before they can then be removed and put in a, a dry storage. But to try to combat this, they will usually attempt to do what's called reprocessing, where when you actually start to burn up this fuel, or when you get to the point where it's no longer useful in our the reactors that we use today, there's still actually a good amount of fissionable material within the fuel rods that, if reprocessed, could be recycled and used to make new fuel rods. And the advantage of that is that these same materials that can be recycled and repurposed into a new fuel rod are also the ones that last the longest. Um, so rather than producing more high-level waste, it's possible to recycle that. So you're actually just producing more intermediate-level waste uh, and getting the most out of that material. Now, there's a couple of caveats here that uh, should probably be addressed. So one of these is that this reprocessing raises a lot of concerns about nuclear proliferation because if this material is being reprocessed, it's possible that it could be um, intercepted and acquired by people who don't necessarily have the best of intentions. But one of the other concerns that people bring up a lot, and I think it, it kind of goes to show kind of the, 
the difficulty of this problem and maybe why there's so much political turmoil, because it's kind of complex. In the act of reprocessing, you do technically reduce the amount of high-level waste, but you dramatically increase the amount of intermediate-level waste. Um, and this has to do with, right, you take a fuel particle, and it's nice a, a nice dense pellet uh, of fuel. Uh, and then in order to separate out the materials, it's now undense. And so it's a bunch of very harmful, difficult to handle things like cesium and strontium isotopes. And so they'll typically just do a process called vitrification, where they create, they just embed it in glass so that it's immobilized and can't diffuse. But in doing that, you increase the physical volume of the waste. But then it's a question of, okay, this is this waste isn't going to stick around as long. It's less harmful. It's easier to store. Um, is that better if we have more of it than keeping around the high-level stuff and then factoring in the added advantage of recycling fuel to it? Presently, if we look up um, this difference or like a measure of activity and volume, High-level waste makes about 95% of the total activity, but it only represents 0.2% of the total waste volume. It's crazy. Whereas conversely, short-lived low-level waste contains less than 1% of the total radioactivity, uh, but may represent greater than 95% of our total waste on a volume basis. I think in the French program alone, there are there's 100,000 to a million cubic meters of uh, nuclear waste uh, that's considered low-level. So where does this all go? How do you find a home for it long-term after it comes out of the pools then? This has been, uh, you know, a debate, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different options. There's this idea of transmutation where they can bombard the isotopes with neutrons and kind of try to make them stable. Yeah. Kind of ironically high energy neutrons, right? You can convert it to something that isn't radioactive, a different species, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I think there's even, uh, you know, enough content there for a good episode. Um, there's a lot of challenges to that and you can't do it without every type of fuel and there's some pre-processing. Um, there's the vitrification that we talked about as well, but that increases the volume and the current international consensus for high level waste is to simply build a deep geological repository, um, you know, dig 450 meters below the ground and then store it in these casks. Um, and these big challenges we face as humans, like what are we gonna do with all the CO2 in the air? I don't know. Stick it in the ground. <laughs> like, what are we gonna do with this nuclear waste? I don't know. Stick it in the ground. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's been the only thing that people can agree on to be the best solution for this stuff that, um, works well on like a cost benefit analysis. Um, but opening these has been incredibly difficult. As yeah. you mentioned in the beginning, there's a lot of political concerns. Um, the Yucca mountain, um, geologic repository site was explored for like 20 years. Dude, and they I, was, up. I was an undergrad. I remember it. It was on the radio nonstop. People talked about it all the time. Sean Hannity was doing Sean Hannity things about it. The other side was doing their thing. Like nobody wanted to touch this. People were concerned about it being shipped across trucks, across state lines. And what if there's an accident? It was wild and it never got resolved. Wasn't it like a huge expense as well? Yeah, in the uh, scoping it out, doing the planning, doing all the research for it, the U.S. spent $15 billion. Um, and Jeez. now it has just simply become politically infeasible to use. But there are other places in the world that are actually very close to completing um, one of these uh, geological repositories. The one that's closest is in Finland. Uh, it's the Ankalo Spent Nuclear Fuel Repository, and it's expected to be operational in 2023. That's rad. They're actually doing it. Very cool. And so maybe before we bring up the 
you know, talk about the materials that they're going to use to actually store and encase these, you know, this nuclear waste for the long term. Maybe we should first talk about the environment and the conditions which these materials need to hold up in. So if we're thinking about a deep geological repository, you're going to have essentially some sort of deep rock formation, um, which is often saturated by water mm-hmm. um, or water molecules. Uh, just as is typical with different soil environments. So we call um, it dry storage, but what you're saying is that it may not stay dry? Yeah, exactly. And usually during the excavation process, a lot of that water just gets displaced um, by excavation. And so initially, you probably will have an unsaturated environment, as they call it. Um, but over time, water seeps in. Okay. What else? Um, you also have to consider residual oxygen in the environment or a lot of this deep groundwater or just deep you know, rock formations in general. There's a high prevalence of chloride ions, which from a corrosion standpoint is somewhat concerning. Um, there's also going to be residual oxygen from the mining, which is also a, you know, a principal component of many corrosion reactions. And something that is also very difficult to predict and some that's very uh, effective in corroding a lot of materials are different microbes and bacteria that can do ionic exchanges or exchange electrons in order to um, facilitate corrosion reactions. And then there's the heat itself, right? These things have, we can sort of model what the heat does and depending on obviously the cavity and the fuels and all that jazz, but it's going to rise, right? The, the When you put it in, the temperature is going to rise over some period of time on the order of decades and then slowly fall off. So you have to understand what the temperature profile is doing over time as well, I suppose. Right, yeah, that decay heat that we mentioned continues. And so you have an environment where there are species that can corrode things. You have uh, a material, uh, a waste material that's giving off heat, which generally accelerates most reactions. So the question is, how can you find some material that is resistant to all these different types of corrosion, um, plays nicely with all these other materials, and can hold up for at least 100,000 years? Under constant irradiation. That's no joke. If you guys remember to our nuclear episode, remember we talked about cladding materials. Cladding is the sort of structural component that holds the fuel pellets, right, in the reactor. And those things are under huge loads, and they have all sorts of horrible stuff happen, right? Fissile gases form in the cladding. There's creep. There's creep rupture. A lot of these same problems we talked about in that episode are present here. So I immediately wonder, like, are we using the same stuff? Are we using zircaloys, or what are we using? Well, the fuel assembly is the same as it would be in the reactor itself. So the fuel pellets, assuming there hasn't been any reprocessing or tampering, are still encased in zircaloy cladding. And then we go out from there, and what's it look like? Yeah, so you're going to have some sort of... um, metallic framework for storing all of these fuel assemblies. Now the fuel assembly is kind of like a long elongated rectangle. It holds all of the fuel rods. It kind of can be pulled in and out of um, a reactor. And so in order to store these, they create these kind of metallic frameworks and they're made out of a ductile cast iron, um, which contains these carbon spheres and it allows to be very castable and uh, very machinable compared to just like a regular steel. Um, but the principal purpose of this is simply to just organize the um, fuel assemblies uh, in such a way that they can then be further encased and in such a way that the, you know, the weight of these fuel assemblies will not break the material. Uh, the material is compliant but strong enough to resist any sort of expansion um, that may occur. So each of these is loaded into these frameworks. And all total, each canister 
uh, once the surrounding material has been put on it, uh, weighs about 25 tons. Yikes, man. These are, so these are not small. These are pretty massive that they're storing. Yeah. So they made a canister. It's got a sort of metal casing around the fuel. Um, is that good enough? You just pop that in the earth and you're done or what? No, because unfortunately the, uh, the, the cast iron is not necessarily the most corrosion resistant. Definitely so this comes not. the corrosion resistant jacket. And this is, I think, where it becomes a kind of a cool materials problem. And it kind of illustrates this interesting phenomenon in materials where it's not necessarily about having the highest corrosion resistance or having super exceptional properties as it is about having the most predictable corrosive properties, right? You want a material that's going to be around for the long term, but you also want one that's going to be very predictable uh, and not undergo any sort of fluctuations. So when we're thinking about corrosion, right, there can be uniform corrosion. This tends to happen to most materials over time. And it's the idea that you're slowly going to be losing, um, uh, your, your material surface at a even rate across the entire material. But you can also have what they call localized corrosion. This can be manifested as pitting or crevice corrosion or stress cracking corrosion. And the problem there is that it proceeds at a much faster accelerated rate compared to uniform corrosion. And it can be as highly unpredictable and it will basically result in a hole in your canister, which is the last thing you want. God, this is so great. I talk about reliability in my intro to materials class. We talk about Weibull examples, right? Weibull, you can pick a, a material that technically has a higher average strength compared to one that has a lower strength, but the lower one, if it has a tighter distribution, then it's more reliable. That's going to be oftentimes way more desirable than the one that has the higher average strength, but has a broader range of properties. So that reliability and understanding how corrosion happens and being able to model it for on the order of what, 10,000 years. I totally see why that's more important than just straight up better anti-corrosion properties. Yeah. And so the dominant material that they use right now is an oxygen free copper that's been alloyed with a little bit of phosphorus. And the reason they include the phosphorus is to improve its creep rupture strain. And the nice thing about copper is that it plays really nicely with most environments it corrodes very uniformly it doesn't suffer the effects of localized corrosion and that ends up working pretty well right if we have an idea of the concentration of different species that are going to cause this corrosion we can actually predictably you know predict how much copper we're going to lose and then determine the thickness of this copper sheet if we want it to last hundred thousand years i'm thinking how i can turn this into a homework question that's pretty rad right so you know how much air is left in the cavern like square foot of air so yeah, you could figure out how much oxidation technically could take place before you run out of oxygen. That's pretty rad. Yeah, they estimate, you know, during the sort of storage process, they introduce about one to 10 moles of O2 per um, square meter of surface area on these canisters. And they can do the calculation and that equates to um, a corrosion depth on the order of 30 to 300 micrometers. And then after that, it, it proceeds at a little bit under a millimeter a little bit under a nanometer per year. Dude, and so you can wild. extrapolate that out. Very cool. So copper, that makes sense. Um, are there other candidates they consider? Well, before we get to that, there's another component that kind of uh, adds some complexity to the, the selection of the material. And that's it. So they basically put these canisters into a um, some sort of underground well, and then they'll put a backfill material and there's two main ones that they're considering. The first is a bentonite clay. And this is, you know, your typical um, silicate. Yeah, layered silicate. It's got your yep. silicate layer. It's got your alumino layer. It's got another silicate layer. 
And the reason they use this, because it has a bunch of desirable properties from a storage and containment standpoint. One, it can be packed and compressed very tightly. And two, it absorbs water, which has a couple of different effects. When it absorbs water, it'll actually swell to create an even tighter seal within the designed sort of geological cell. Um, additionally, the absorption of water will limit uh, microbial activity, um, which are a key cause of corrosion so in these clever. environments. And they're difficult to resolve. It's, you can't really do anything to prevent their formation. They're always going to win. Plus, bentonite's um, super cheap. You could dig. They literally yep. dig it right out of the earth. There's mines here in Utah where that's a really common export. And the low water activity also limits the its ability to react with the copper. So it's basically limiting this fundamental, like water is uh, it's a great medium for ionic transport and thus corrosion. And so by limiting its activity, you're going to limit its ability to affect corrosion. Um, but in general, bentonite clay is extremely impermeable to a lot of harmful ions, resulting in extremely low concentrations of things like chloride ever or chloride ions ever reaching the copper canister or leaving for that matter. Um, so sulfur ions are a primary concern for copper corrosion and in a stagnant solution, the steady state sort of mass transfer coefficient of, uh, sulfur ions is on the order of 10 to the negative third centimeters per second, but in highly compacted bentonite clay, uh, that's on the order of 10 to the eighth to 10 to the ninth. Wow. 10 to what the, sorry, that? excuse me. Like 10,000 10 times eighth. slower. That's, that's a huge improvement. Yeah, and so you can see it's unlikely that you're going to get um, sufficient concentration uh, to actually cause corrosion. And it's unlikely that material that gets corroded is going to be able to leave the area as well. So what you're saying is that this jacket material, the anti-corrosion jacket, we have to worry about all the corrosion problems we had before, but now we also have to worry about compatibility with something like bentonite or other concrete or something else that they're going to pour into this thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, which for copper isn't really a problem. They'll sometimes use cement as well. Um, but the challenge comes, you know, depending on your alkaline environment, uh, it'll affect the pH of the environment as well. And some materials, uh, such as our next one, carbon steel, if you're um, using bentonite clays, the steels tend to be active or in a, in a corroding and an instable, um, an unstable sort of environment, and it'll actually accelerate corrosion. But with a cementitious backfill, uh, it becomes passive and you're unlikely to corrode as much. And so you have to match the, the backfill and the canister materials as well. Uh, most of the time, they, you know, they're choosing carbon steel here because it is lower strength um, compared to uh, like a lower, lower carbon percent steel. And the reason they do that is to try to avoid hydrogen cracking, um, which I think in previous episodes we talked yeah. about is basically the infiltration of hydrogen, which yep. kind of prevents um, slip and makes the material brittle. And if your material is already too brittle, you're going to get cracking and that's going to cause localized corrosion and just accelerate your, your failure of your material here. Well, um, all right, man, you keep on giving me these B-level materials. Give me the S-tier, man. What's the really good stuff that you would use if you really wanted to block this? I think the best materials out there are going to be titanium and nickel alloys. Mm, okay. uh, How titanium come? alloys form a great passive oxide layer, has the widest range of stability across different pH values. It's uh, you know, if you include palladium in your titanium alloy, it has <laughs> really superior <laughs> crevice corrosion <laughs> resistance. And titanium is actually one of the only alloys that isn't affected by microbial corrosion. So it's, oh, really? you know, from a materials and corrosion standpoint, it's probably, you know, 
one of the best materials you could have for this situation. The problem is it's incredibly expensive and the amount that you'd have to use here is uh, quite a bit. And it's really just sunk cost. There's no, you don't get anything yeah. back. You know, you're not going to be around in a hundred thousand years and your company probably isn't going to be around in a hundred thousand years either. Um, so I don't know what benefits you're going to be able to reap from spending this. Um, nickel alloys are also pretty great. And uh, the main reason is that they have a lot of customizability. You can alloy them with a lot of different things and create some pretty complex alloys as well. And the advantage of that is you can kind of match your alloy to your environment. So that's very compatible and you're unlikely to get any corrosion. Um, But a lot of uh, nickel alloys, if you, you know, they have a kind of a threshold of uh, potential uh, electrochemical potential for corrosion where when it's under that you're fine but if you exceed that threshold it corrodes pretty rapidly and so that's quite a bit of a concern um and i think the big problem is that while there is research here it's just not a big focus and so there's not a lot of money going into it and i think one of the other kind of interesting challenges of this is right there is that trade-off between reprocessing the the waste and creating more intermediate level waste it's more predictable it's going to be around within one or uh, within a couple generations so that information can be transferred. But think about 100,000 years. How much information is going to be lost in that time? Are we even going to remember right. where we placed all of this stuff? <laughs> Pretty wild. Okay, if you've listened to us before, you know that we love a company called MapMatch around here. Uh, while this episode was happening, I was hopping over there and doing some Googling to look for their oxygen-free copper, to look at their titanium alloys, nickel alloys, and they have a whole bunch. And it's not just the properties listed like you might see in some CRC handbook or whatever. You actually see providers who will sell this stuff to you, and that's what MapMatch does. They connect engineers with the actual providers of the materials that you want to use, whether you are doing some hobby in your garage or you are building an underground around nuclear fuel container, right? Uh, reach out to them and consider them for the next engine project working to find the materials that you need. The Materialism Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. You can visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date on the latest happenings in the material science field and read some of their fantastic articles that they've published. You know, a, a topic that we briefly discussed is this idea of vitrification encasing nuclear waste in glass and while it's sure to be a topic for a future show if you want to read about it right now there's a great article uh, from materials today that you can read on it we'll put that in the show notes definitely go check that out Um, you can also head over to elsevier.com to find out more about their journals books conferences and related programs so go check them out finally big thanks to the people that make the show possible the editors, the people that reach out to us to suggest great episodes, the people that leave us reviews on iTunes. I'm looking at you guys. You're the best. Thanks for doing it. The people who make the music, that's Colobite and Alphabot. Check their music out on Spotify, YouTube. You know where to find music these days. Um, And as always, if you've got an idea for a super rad new episode, maybe you want to hear all about nuclear processing or you want to hear about this vitrification that Andrew mentioned, well, shoot, shoot us an email and we'll add it to our list of shows that we plan on covering in 2022. It's going to be a great year. Okay, we'll see you guys next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>